0: Stephen Palmer's Hairy London Episode 22 Some of the main Whitechapel streets had been clipped using enormous steam-operated scissors that Jeremy had heard earlier clicking and clacking in distant thoroughfares. But the fine blonde hair covering this part of London grew quickly and Mansell Street, in which they rested, stretched out like a yellow field. Jeremy stood up and walked into the street. Split ends were bad here, causing the hair to form a fuzzy roof like a jungle canopy in which all manner of confused insects flew. The echo of a woman's scream died away. He glanced back at Mrs, who was awakening. Nothing to worry about, he said, knowing she would not have heard the cry. He did not want her anxious. Night lay still and silent. He was hungry again. We need food, he said. She nodded, then walked over to join him. Where now. Onward through Whitechapel, he replied. "'Then into the city. Soon we shall see St. Paul's.' "'I ain't never seen St. Paul's,' she said. "'They forged a way through the hare "'until they reached the junction with Somerset Street, "'where they turned left, "'finding a shaved path through the blonde thickets. "'Sheremy saw figures ahead, "'people illuminated by lanthorns on poles, "'and one was a police officer. "'He stopped.' "'remembering Murchison volume. "'We've been noticed, we has,' Mrs said, "'pressing herself against him. "'Just walks on through. "'They won't know us.' "'Sheramy was not so sure. "'But already the police officer was beckoning them to approach. "'As they closed, the man said, <clears throat> "Sergeant for young service, "'are you two passing through?' "'Yes,' Jeremy replied relieved that he'd not been recognised. You ought to be careful, sir, what with your arm in arm with a lady and all. Jacques is abroad tonight. Jacques? Jacques the Raper. Le Violaire. He's attacked before. Ladies of the night, you understand. Left them in a hideous mess. Ah, Jeremy said, recalling what he'd learned in the house of cat women. He sounds a notorious criminal. If I see or hear anything, I'll... "'Be sure to get a message to you.' "'Really, sir?' the sergeant sounded surprised. "'From his pocket he took a notepad, beneath which dangled a copper pen. "'Use this,' he explained, "'and what you write will appear on the pages of my master notebook. "'Grateful to you, sir.' charamy took the automatic notebook, unnerved by the offer, "'which had more than a hint of telegraphical communication.' He wanted as few connections to the police as could be managed, preferably none. Uh, you, er... Uh, he began. Sergeant Koff raised his eyebrows. You uh, don't have any connections with the police forces further west, do you? None, sir. The East End is a different country. Jeremy nodded, patting the officer on the shoulder. Well done, he said, turning to depart. Oh, sir, Sergeant Koff said. Sheramy's heart seemed to leap into his mouth. "'Yes?' he squeaked. "'There's also a rumour of an uprising in these parts. "'Mind I go, sir?' "'Sheremy, trembling with nerves, nodded. "'Thank you, Sergeant,' he said, "'taking the proffered lanthorn on a pole. "'They walked along Somerset Street to its end, "'but Oldgate High Street lay thick with strong brown hair "'and seemed to Jeremy's eyes... "'all but impassable. "'We might have to go east along Whitechapel High Street,' he said, "'then force a way round. "'It's far from ideal, my dear. "'If we can't get through, we can't get through,' Mrs said. "'They managed to force a way through the fringe of the hair "'until they reached Whitechapel Street. "'But then Cheramy, sniffing the air, smelled something. "'Something bad. "'Blood,' he said. "'Look!' It was a woman's body, lying half-concealed by brown locks. Jeremy approached, but knew before he'd knelt at the woman's side that it was too late. He threw Mrs the automatic notebook, saying, write to the sergeant, before pulling back locks of hair to reveal the grisly scene. But I can't write, Mrs replied, looking sheepish. Oh, very well. Jeremy scrawled a note, then knelt again beside the victim. She'd been assaulted, then slashed, and, he suspected, had died from loss of blood. Bringing close the lanthorn, he saw a thread on her clothes that, when he removed it, proved to be a single, long, white hair. He considered this a piece of evidence, then put it back and stood up. Sergeant Coff ran up, halting when he saw the body. Have you touched it? No, Jeremy replied. I'll leave the investigation to you, officer. But she's been dead a couple of hours, I suspect. You're not the murderer then, sir? No, indeed, not me, Jeremy replied. But his mind was whirling with thoughts. They hurried away, ducking into an alley as soon as they could. Mrs squeezed his hand, then stood on tiptoes to kiss him. Oh... You don't like the police now, does you? No, my dear. They've proven to be corrupt, I'm sad and surprised to say. Murchison volume is corrupt, Mrs said. It's not quite the same. If you don't mind, Jeremy interrupted, I'll stick to my... Shh! Mrs hissed. Then she pointed to the rooftop opposite. A man staring at us. Jeremy looked up to see a figure... "'illuminated by the methane farm lamps of Commercial Road, "'and in that ruddy light he looked like a hero, "'shining in a sunset. "'But then Charamy noticed something else. "'Masked face, hair beneath a woollen hat, "'grapnello and a rope on his back. "'Could it be? "'Unlikely, but... "'Monsieur!' he cried out. "'Comment allez-vous?' "'The man stood frozen, staring.' and Jeremy knew, Jacques. Without thought, he scrambled across the street and began climbing a fire escape leading up to the roof. Then he paused. Damn it, this man must not recognise him. He pulled out a kerchief and pressed it to his face, but the result was inadequate. Still, it was late at night, dark little moon. He climbed on. Atop the roof, he saw that his quarry stood trapped at the end of the chimney stack. He closed. The man was not quick on his feet, he noticed, as if age dulled his joints. Jeremy began to feel confident, but then the man jumped and, like the seed of the Daniel de Lion, floated down to the street below. Hot damn! A continental cedar flap! Probably smuggled over by Bismarck on the Deutsche Ferry, Sheremy swore aloud, then descended the fire escape as fast as he could. Mrs stood unprotected. Nobody stood in the street near her, but he nevertheless forged his way through the hair as fast as he could. She was safe, if nervous. Was, was that him? she asked. Yes, Jeremy replied, I'm sure of it. He concealed his face, so I know not who he is, but it was Jack the Raper, all right, the cad. All at once there came the sound of a policeman's whistle. Jeremy looked around but saw no officer. Then he saw Jacques blowing a whistle. What's he doing? he muttered, calling the police. Mrs grabbed him, clutching his arms. Don't follow him. Don't leave me, Jeremy, my darling. I'll be ripped to pieces, I will. Yes, you're right. You are my priority, he replied. Damn it! And the man was so close. There's Sergeant Coff coming up the street and some other policeman. "'Sheromy pointed, shouting, "'There, officer! He's over there!' "'But Jacques the Raper, if he truly was, "'had vanished into hair and darkness. "'Sergeant Koff approached. "'Just a few yards away, on the opposite side of the street, "'he fell over something lying beneath the hair. "'A body!' "'One of the other police officers pulled back locks of hair. "'A woman! She's been done in by Jack's! "'The devil!' That's two in one night. Sergeant Koff stared at Cheremy, then pointed and said, Arrest that man. Jeremy stared. Me? Two burly officers approached through the street hair. Jeremy gasped. Me, Sergeant Koff? No, there was a man on the same side of the street as you. I trapped him on the roof. Sergeant Koff glanced up at the roof, then said, Oh, really, sir? He floated down on a seedling. Oh, really, sir? The policeman grabbed Jeremy. You're micked, one grunted. Charamy struggled. Mrs. shrank back, horrified. Wait, Charamy said. Jacques blew a police whistle. i have been set up. And again, he knew now the identity of Jacques the Raper. It's but before he could speak the name there came a flash of yellow light and an explosion from the lower end of Commercial Street. The policeman ducked. Sergeant Cough fell flat on his face. Jeremy took his chance, grabbing Mrs. by the arm and leaping into the air in the centre of the street. Nearby stood Old Castle Street. As fast as he could, he forged his way towards it. But seconds later, he saw swarms of people emerging from Commercial Street while more hacked and slashed their way down Old Castle Street to the sound of martial sing-alongs and Joanna playing. The uprising, Jeremy gasped. The what? The Cockney uprising, and we're trapped. We'll be mashed up and made into pet food. Run for your life. Too late, I reckon, Mrs. said with a sigh. No one hath any greater love than that of a man for his country, Velveen's brother had told him. And it turned out that Velveen's country was under threat from the Kaiser, who had created an outpost of his fatherland in southwest London. Landing the Archimedean floating system, Felton Recreation Ground, Velveen, with all the excitement of a young boy in a playroom, strapped on his rucksack and prepared himself for war, a smile spread across his face. This, he felt sure, was the answer, the highest calling, the one. Goodbye, Lilybet," he said to the clay figure. Stay here, whatever the weather, and one day I shall return to see how you are progressing. The camouflage abilities of the Machinora will keep you invisible to prying eyes. He was certain the figure turned to look at him. It was as if the thing, the woman, was trying to reply. Then a faint voice said, Come back to me. Don't leave me, Delvin. He took a few steps back, shook his head. The woman's eyes remained closed, but had they flickered, he could not be sure. After looking from north to east to south to west, to ensure himself he did not lose the machinora, and fixing the shape of a nearby pine tree in his mind, he walked away, his heart thumping. First crossing the Longford River, then Harlington Road west, he headed east, making for Hounslow Heath, where the main outposts of the Britisher Army lay. He had seen them during his flight. Once he stopped. Though distant, he could hear the noise of shells falling, of guns firing, unless that was just an echo of thunder. He walked on, crossing the Hounslow Road a number of canvas-topped, horseless carriages sped by, full of men in uniform. He waved to them. Then he splashed across the river Crane and headed for the Staines Road, where, glittering in the morning sun, he saw a makeshift aluminium hut with a huge Union jack flying atop it. He stopped and saluted. Inside the hut, he saw a number of military officers at tables, papers strewn everywhere and a queue of eight men, all in civilian clothes. Volunteers, he knew. He joined the line at its end. The volunteer in front was a somewhat rounded man of medium height, with dark eyes and black curly hair. Velvine shook his hand and said, I'm Velvine Orchard, are you volunteering? The man nodded. Arthuriad Spaniel, pleased to meet you. You look in a bad way, Valveen. Been cross-country running? Valveen glanced down at his clothes, which, from days in the outdoors, had become dirty and frayed. Yes, he replied. So, the Hun is nearby, eh? Very much so. Kaiser Bill thinks he can take Kingston upon Thames. We're here to stop him. The king and country, absolutely. Another man joined the queue standing behind Velveen, who at once turned to shake him by the hand. Velveen Orchard, pleased to meet you. Chokilgate, cleaner by trade, nice to meet you. The man was a commoner, small, pale and untidy, but Velveen felt no shame in touching him. They were all in this together. One and all against the Hun, he declared. As the line shuffled forward, Velvine acquired as many facts about his comrades as he could. Arthuriad was the manager of a velocipede shop in Isleworth, but his trade had dried up after the arrival of the hare. Chok, meanwhile, had six brothers, eight sisters, and formerly lived in a rented shed before leaving home to enlist. He was just 19. After Arthuriad, it was Velvine's turn to sign up. Name? Velvine Orchard. Age? 31. Trade? Valvine hesitated. Aviator. The officer, a sergeant, laughed. This is the army, mate. We don't need birdmen in our ranks. I wish to enlist as a private, Valvine replied, knowing he could never mention his suicide club experience. I have no small skill at... All right, all right, that's enough. Go to the orderly and get your uniform. Velveen did as he was told, to find himself fifteen minutes later in a long line of men beside the Staines Road, with Arthuriad to his right and Chalk to his left. Each carried a tin hat in one hand and a rifle in the other. A sergeant bawled at them. Now then, there's no time for anything but basic training. The Hun is in Fullwell Park. The front line is the Great Chertsey Road. We need as many men as possible down there to stop the Hun advance. "'Doesn't matter how inexperienced you are. "'All you need to do is to learn how to fire a rifle and how to resist. "'Got that?' "'A chorus of, "'Yes, sir.' "'For the rest of the day, they trained. "'They learned how to use their rifles. "'They learned how to clean them, "'how to take them apart and reassemble them. "'Then how to crawl, run, duck and dive in a variety of conditions. "'They learned how to cross barbed wire, "'how to use a grenade.' And the most basic of first aid training. Velvine, accustomed to advanced medical procedures, winced as he realized what knowledge the rest of the men would be lacking if they came to harm. He vowed to stick by Arthuriad and Chalk if he could. Though Chalk was far below his station, the man was keen, if a little too cunning, while Arthuriad had a naive humor about him, though no little intelligence. They slept in spit-and-sawdust huts on the north side of Stain's Road. Six hundred men or more, all of them new recruits. Velvine slept well, though the accommodation was basic. Having lived in the Machinora for a while, he wanted a proper bed. Next morning, they ate a simple breakfast of kipperets and sweet mash, with lukewarm teesum to drink. Then it was drill and more training. The call to action came after three days. The platoon's officer, Lieutenant Thwacken, called them into ranks, then said, The Hun is bringing a large company of soldiers up to the Great Chertsey Road, along with a number of engines, the purpose of which we have yet to grasp. You chaps will be heading down there to hold the line. The Hun must not cross that road. Our front line must stay solid. They made busy. The platoon's second-in-command was Sergeant Boson, who organised the men into groups while Lieutenant Thwacken got on the field telegraphian to communicate with HQ. Then they were off, marching across Hounslow Heath to the railway line at its southern end. Velvine was surprised to see chocolate debris on the lines. Normally it would be scavenged by children, so he and his comrades... "'scraped it off and ate it. "'The line itself did not seem to have been used for a while because of the war. "'They tramped across Hanworth Road, then made into Powder Mill Lane. "'But as they did, Chuck gasped and pointed across the way to Crane Park. "'What's that?' "'Velvine looked ahead, his hand to his forehead to shield his eyes from the sun. "'It appeared as though the engines of the enemy had crossed the front line.' They were like castle turrets on legs, made of metal, it seemed, and striding like gigantic herons across the trees and bushes of Crane Park. From their upper stanchions, rifles emerged to fire. ''Defensive positions!'' came the call. Every man scrambled for cover as some of the engines approached. Velvine, Arthuriad and Choc lay well concealed behind a hedge, but others were less fortunate and as the engines approached, they began to fall. Appalled at this early death toll, Velvine took a grenade from his pocket, pulled out the pin, then threw it at the nearest engine, timing the flight so that it would explode just before hitting the thing, which it did. -"Good chuck, that man!" yelled Lieutenant Thwacken. Velvine watched the machine stumble, but it did not fall so he took another grenade and lobbed a second, perfectly timed throw at the machine. Again, it wobbled but did not fall, so he took his final grenade and ran out to hide behind an oak tree. Bullets struck the ground around him. From the cover of the tree, he dodged out and lobbed the grenade at the rifle port. It flew in exploded. The machine's lid blew off in a shower of clothes, limbs and blood, and it fell to the ground. Parts of bodies rolled out alongside smoking lumps of machinery. Felveen ran back. Arthuriad and Chalk stared at him. Where the cracking hell did you learn to do that? Arthuriad asked. Felveen shrugged. I just did what came naturally, he said, already aware of how he stood out from the rest of the privates. Sergeant Boson ran up, skidding to a halt beside him. Good work, Archer, he said. Orchard, sir. Got any more tricks like that, old fellow? Well, just doing my best for my country, Felveen replied, not knowing what else to say. Any more heroics and you'll be whizzed up to corporal. Good show. Then he was gone. Corporal Orchard, said Chalk. Wowee. Felveen found himself keen to downplay the incident. It all came naturally, he explained. You would have done the same thing, eh? Uh, "'Not like that,' Arthuriad replied. "'Valveen shrugged again. "'Was this all for the love of his country?' "'He said, "'What is it about this land that makes us all defend it, eh?' "'What?' Chuck grunted. "'It's not so much this land,' Arthuriad said, "'more that we don't want the Hun occupying it. "'Frankly, I'd rather be in Scotland.' "'Scotland? "'Cleaner, quieter, no horseless carriages.' Velvine nodded, surprised at this. Then, you do not love your country? Of course, but not in that way. I just don't want foreigners in it. Velvine turned to Chalk. What about you, eh? I just want to get away from home. Disappointed, Velvine turned away from them, but there was no time for more small talk. Incoming, hun Devilby! shouted Lieutenant Thwacken. Velveen peered over the hedge to see a terrifying sight. Were they metal giants with extended arms, swaying gun towers with flaring orange eyes? He could not say, but they were heading their way with a noise like banshees wailing, leaving wakes of smoke and fumes. Defensive positions, Lieutenant Thwacken yelled. Velveen scanned the land, ahead, fields with no cover, behind, a copse. The hedge offered cover, but already it was shot through in many places. The majority of the platoon lay in semi-cover at the edge of the copse. A single battle kept their firepower, and then the shells began to rain down. All three of them retreated from the hedge into the copse as earth, stones and vegetation burst upward, then rained down over them the stench of cordite filled the air, smoke began to drift into the copse. Then Velvine saw two metal giants stalking towards them. At once, he saw they were invincible, vast, monstrous, firing automatic rounds from their extended arms. But then the bazooka fired, and one of those arms fell off. The giant paused, turned, bent down, but seemed to think better of its plan, standing upright and heading for the copse we dead meat, Arthurian said. Get that arm gun off the ground, Chuck said, pushing Velvine. What? Get the arm gun. Fire at the bleeding thing's legs. Go on. Velvine peered out across the fields. It's a suicide mission, he said. You can do it, they cried, hauling him to his feet. Go on, Corporal Orchard. But Velvine hesitated. He knew that if he stepped out upon a field of no cover, he was dead. Yet he could save his platoon if he reached and fired that hung gun. The legs of the steel giants were their weakness, like the thin legs of wading birds. I cannot just sacrifice myself, he cried. It is suicide. You've got to. Someone's got to. Arthuriad and Chog pushed him to the hedge. But he dug his heels in. No. It's too dangerous. Even I. Chog dodged out and ran through the nearest pool of smoke. Shells exploded at the hedge. Velvine, stunned, ran into the copse. More shells landed, exploded. Then one, especially close, and the blood-soaked headless body of Arthuriad spanned by him, hit a tree, and dropped to the ground. Another shell, another explosion. The noise seemed to pierce Velvine's head, crushing it. He had no idea where he was. He ran, arms outstretched, crying out, unaware of what he was saying, but feeling words emerge from his mouth like a spume soaked clement for himself. He choked, halted. Fumes surrounded him. Another shell exploded. He tripped and rolled down the side of a crater. Then he heard voices. Been hit by something. Get his face clear. Man's got to breathe. Another shell exploded. Carry him to the cart. Quick, man, he's alive. Velvine felt himself moving, but he did not know how. All right, lead him to the M.O. Looks like another case of shell shock. More motion. Shell shock for sure. More voices, then nothing. He woke up, certain that he could hear a train announcement. Dr. Farquhar to the surgery? Dr. Farquhar to the surgery? He opened his eyes. He lay in bloodied sheets in a bedroll on a platform. He saw the sign, Feltham. It was a military hospital, war wounded surrounding him. But he felt numb. He could not comprehend how he had got to Feltham Railway Station. It must be a hoax, for he could not smell chocolate. He got up and staggered a few steps away. Not far, he knew, lay his precious Archimedean floating system, in which he could escape this pandemonium. But could he find it? It was late afternoon, or so he thought, the sun descending into smoky, orange skies. The recreation ground lay nearby. He staggered along roads, followed signs, his head pounding. He saw buildings, people, but they ignored him. There were lines of wounded all along the road. He smelt death, antiseptic, fluid, Cordite. Horses whinnied. Paddles were red with blood. Broken carts lay everywhere. Then he felt clean air on his skin, and he saw grass beneath his feet. He recognised a tall hut with a fox as a weather vane. The Machinora might be nearby. He wandered, lost. His mind fell thick and heavy. His legs were tired. Words came out of his mouth, but they made no sense. Then he saw a pine tree. He thought he knew where he was. The Machinora! He bumped into something, and that something changed before his eyes. Then a figure reached out to haul him in. He stood inside the wicker capacity, a woman beside him, or so it seemed. He lit the heaterix, then slumped to the floor. The wind whistled around him. He felt movement, swaying He heard a woman's voice. He thought it might be... But no, it could not be her. I want to go home, he said. I want to go home. You've been listening to Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by... R.D. Watson.